Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with what could be the most damaging evidence against Trump emerging from an even more tawdry tabloid source than the porn star Stormy Daniels. In this case, lurid details backed up by recorded evidence in Monday's 70-page lawsuit brought against Rudy Giuliani in a Manhattan court by Noel Dumphy, who served as director of business operations in Giuliani's law firm, where she was expected to provide her Viagra-popping constantly drunk boss with oral sex and other sexual favors based on the promise he would pay her a million dollars a year, which he failed to do. Apparently inspired by the recent E. Jean Carroll trial, Ms. Dunphy has 23,000 emails of Giuliani's communications between Trump and his top staff, along with his family, which special counsel Jack Smith and the Atlanta DA will surely find interesting, in particular claims that Giuliani sought clients wanting presidential pardons at the going rate of $2 million a head, bribes that would be split with Trump. Joining us is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Then we'll get an update on the debt ceiling negotiations today between congressional leaders and President Biden, who is cutting short his trip after the G7 summit in Japan scheduled for Papua New Guinea and Australia to return to Washington on Sunday in the hope a deal will be done ahead of the June 1st default deadline. Joining us is Thomas Kahn, a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University who worked in Congress for 33 years where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played, a critical, and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful Balanced Budget Agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. Then finally, we'll examine the disappointing results in Sunday's election in Turkey, since the kleptocratic autocrat whose economic policies have devastated the countries, still recovering from the deadly earthquake in which 50,000 died, in part because of the corruption and cronyism of Erdogan's regime, in any fair race would have been beaten. Joining us is Asla Bali, a professor of law at Yale Law School, incoming president of the Middle East Studies Association of North America and a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, she served as founding faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA Law School and was a former director of the UCLA Center for Near East Studies. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, 
your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org. Contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And Scott, we're going to go sort of segue from a sort of serious discussion about national security and, and the law, which we often have into a kind of tabloid discussion because the subject matter has earned that requirement because Rudy Giuliani apparently hired a woman to be a sort of business development woman. He promised to pay her a million dollars a year, which he didn't do. And her real job requirement was to give him oral sex regularly, particularly when he was on the on the speakerphone talking to Donald Trump and other important figures. He repeatedly raped her, according to the complaint that she just filed in federal court on Monday in New York, and apparently she was inspired to do so by the E. Jean Carroll case that just concluded with Trump having to pay her $5 million. So what do you make of this salacious story? It It is um, amazing in one sense, uh, but on the other hand, if we go and look item by item through all the, in many cases, highly detailed allegations of uh, sexual misconduct uh, and other things, there's very little there that hasn't already appeared in, in public allegations against Giuliani. So this is the first time we're hearing this in the form of a lawsuit uh, where the allegations will have to be made to stand up in the courtroom. Well, the most explosive, and, and I would think the one that makes him legally liable, is the claim that he asked her, do you know anybody that wants a presidential pardon and that uh, we're charging $2 million per pardon and I'm splitting the money with Donald Trump? That, that's exactly right. So, I, And I think allegations that uh, pardons were being sold in the last, roughly three to four months of the presidency have been out there for a long time, including people who say they were offered uh, a pardon for for pay. Um, this is maybe um, uh, the first time we've seen this in a legal setting. And I think one consequence of the suit is that there's, there's really no way Jack Smith, the special counsel appointed by uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, can dodge this now. So this really becomes one of the allegations he's going to have to investigate uh, to the end. And I, I would just note in connection with that, she also states that uh, that Giuliani turned over to her 23,000 uh, of his emails, and she has possession of all of those. So I and that, that includes communications he had um, with Trump, with Trump's chief of staff, uh, with other members of Trump's family. Uh, and so on, all of which I think is going to be um, intensely interesting to those who are investigating uh, criminal accusations against Trump uh, and his uh, inner entourage 
including, again, Jack Smith, but also the Fulton County DA and others. And Noelle Dumphy, who is the woman that Rudy Giuliani hired but never paid, he paid her about $12,000 in expenses, having promised her a million dollars a year. So he told her, apropos of the pardons, he told Ms. Dumphy that she could refer individuals seeking pardons to him so long as they didn't go through the normal channels of the Office of the Pardon Attorney. And it turns out that as of 2022, the Office of the Pardon Attorney had a backlog of more than 17,000 applications for pardons. But in Trump's case, uh, he didn't go through the official channels. Only 25 of the 240 pardons and commutations that Trump granted came through the regular Justice Department channels. So, you know, that's over 200 pardons that you could start looking into, right, that were possibly uh, shakedowns. I, I think that's correct. So I, I would say the there is quite a bit of uh, legal scholarship on this question of presidential pardons. Um, the view has been expressed for a long time that there, that uh, a president's decision to grant a pardon is really not reviewable or contestable. And I think that's that's almost certainly correct. But that doesn't mean uh, that a corruptly motivated pardon uh, is beyond review. So if pardons are actually being sold, that's a different question. And that could lead to uh, criminal charges against all the people who are involved with it. And I think we have really no precedent uh, with a presidential pardon um, being found to be corrupt. But I think actually there are quite a few precedents involving uh, state governors um, and other senior figures where there have been prosecutions. Um, so, yeah. So, I, again, I think it's something that Jack Smith, with the filing of this complaint, it's not something Jack Smith can avoid. He's going to have to conduct a complete investigation and make a determination of whether charges are uh, merited. And I think it also tends to put Rudy Giuliani more firmly in, in focus as a very a person very likely to be um, uh, to face criminal charges in many of these investigations, certainly both the federal investigation and the Atlanta investigation. Well, it's pretty clear that Trump surrounds himself with bottom feeders um, because professionals with integrity can't work for the guy uh, or, you know, experienced people. And we know that from all the adults in the room, all of whom quit or were fired and replaced by complete incompetence, but who were just sycophants, basically. But this really, I think, takes this to an even greater level. Uh, I don't think there's been anything quite so damning as Noel Dumphy's claims here. And you mentioned the fact that she's got 23,000 emails that are very incriminating. And apparently, hasn't Jack Smith, the special counsel, been trying to get these emails along with the prosecutor down in Atlanta? Yes, they both have. I think some of uh, Giuliani's emails were turned over in other uh, litigation uh, previously. Uh, but uh, Rudy has been, uh, Giuliani has been contesting the efforts to turn over the emails with fairly preposterous arguments. So in the uh, in the D.C. grand jury case, he argued that he didn't have the money uh, to pay to have the uh, to have his uh, email database reviewed. Um, 
uh, not much of an answer. But in this case, the fact that he turned over these emails to a woman he insists was not his employee uh, could serve to waive attorney-client privilege uh, uh, claims on his part. In any event, I think it it makes his resistance to turnover requests look a little absurd. Well, but in addition to having the emails, these 23,000 emails that apparently are exchanges with Mark Meadows and other people in the Trump inner circle along with Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric Trump. I don't know about Jared Kushner, but in the long and the short of it is, she's also got apparently a lot of this stuff on tape. She's got Rudy Giuliani on tape on apparently a number of occasions. I I think that's right. And one thing that's very interesting about this complaint, if you look at it, it's structured to signal very strongly what corroborating evidence exists for every uh, allegation. Uh, So many times she says it's on tape and other times uh, she identifies specifically other people who are in the room who would be corroborating witnesses uh, for the allegations. It's actually much more forthcoming than is in the norm of complaints of this sort filed in, in, in New York state courts. And in one of the more explosive accusations, uh, Lev Parnas was in, in the room, was he not? That's correct. And what's his situation? Is he, st- is he still in jail? So he's coming to the end of his term and should be up for release right about now. So, But uh, he, he has spent more than a year in jail, yes. And do you think that the, these people are, are going to support or corroborate what she's saying? Yeah. I think he would be released on parole, and I think he has actually a pretty good track record already of collaboration with prosecutors. Uh, so, you know, I would expect him to um, to speak the truth about all these things when he's asked. Well, if this guy wasn't president and these people around him weren't his inner circle giving him advice, and Rudy Giuliani apparently was drunk just about all of the time. One of her jobs, Noelle Dumphy, was to keep feeding him glasses of scotch. And so here he is, drunk as a skunk, on the phone, speaker phones, demanding she give him oral sex, popping Viagra every other minute. I I thought there was a limit on how many Viagras you could have, so it's a wonder the guy didn't drop dead. And then there's one part of the lawsuit alleges that he sat on the bed and pulled down his pants. And in the complaint that was filed by her lawyer, they actually have a clip from the film Borat, subsequent movie film, uh, which has Giuliani lying on the bed with his pants down and the young actress in the movie, apparently Sasha Baron Cohen, the director, who normally pushes things to the limit, actually had to intervene and stop the filming because he, he was worried for his uh, young star that she was going to be raped by this guy. Um, but apparently it was a, a routine for poor Miss Dunphy who had to uh, service this Viagra-popping drunk. I, I think this is also a civil action, mind you, and uh, evidence like the film footage that Sasha Baron Cohen has, uh, not all of which was included in the film. I think there's quite a bit more. This would all come in as corroborating evidence for her accusations, um, which is why I think, you know, there's simply no way 
that these allegations can be easily brushed off or dismissed. Um, so how how reliable though is is Noel Dunphy because she's been having a lawsuit with her husband she, who she accused of raping and beating her, and Giuliani had promised to represent her free while promising to pay her a million dollars for whatever expertise she had uh, beyond oral sex, etc. So, I mean, how would you think she would be as a, as a uh, witness? I would say first, I would say a few things. One is these are the sort of accusations which in the New York court system are difficult to get dismissed out of turn. So this is something uh, that will go uh, to trial ultimately if she persists with the claims. Uh, and the second thing I would say is that, uh, look, it, it will be her testimony versus his. The, the, jury, the jury or the finder of fact is going to look hard for corroborating evidence. Um, you know, what, uh, uh, what is there out there that, that stands up these claims or not? And if she has um, uh, uh, tapes of these things and she has corroborating witnesses, and there's some corroboration to her statements, I think it will stand up. Uh, and remember, there are two parts to this. There's the sexual abuse part, where we have a special uh, New York statute that enables these sorts of claims. That's a fairly modern thing. Um, and then there is the compensation part, uh, her payment for, of her uh, fee for her work. Um, but I think this is something that ultimately goes to trial, goes to a jury, gets decided by a jury, and the evidence is presented already looks pretty strong. So we would have to see, you know, what is uh, what evidence does Rudy have to refute it? And uh, so far in the few hours since this was filed, we've not heard much other than blanket denials from Rudy. Um, and that's not much, frankly. Well, I can imagine that the trial will feature all of these audio recordings of Giuliani. I mean... If Trump's deposition video, which was played in the E. Jean Carroll trial, was was <laughs> was shocking enough, imagine what's going to how much information the public are going to get about this guy who was so close to Trump and was such an important advisor to him, and then not, not to mention the twenty three thousand email exchanges between Giuliani and all these other crackpots that were trying to, you know, do the stop the steal scam along with Mark Meadows and, and the Trump family. My God, this could be about a thousand smoking guns. I, th I think that's right. And it's not just her credibility, it's also Rudy Giuliani's credibility. And uh, he, in hearing after hearing, he has not really stood up well as a credible witness. Uh, and I think that's something that's going to be, um, we're going to hear a lot more about shortly, because remember, he testified before the grand jury in Fulton County, um, and, you know, what I'm hearing coming out of Georgia right now is that he's close to the epicenter of the criminal charges that are going to be brought, and his evidence was not believed in the grand jury. So I think we'll probably hear a lot more about that. Also, I'd say, look, Rudy Giuliani has been protected by absolutely extraordinary measures over the last couple of years. Bill Barr intervened very heavily and did things. Uh, to stop him from being charged uh, earlier in the matters that uh, resulted in prosecution and conviction of two of his associates. Uh, and beyond that, there are a series of other cases where uh, 
it's clear that charges could have been brought by federal prosecutors and the hand that Bill Barr came in to stop them. In addition to that, there are all sorts of very strange things that have happened at upper echelons of the FBI, which can only be explained as measures designed to protect Rudy Giuliani and probably a number of, of senior um, and former FBI officials who are close to Rudy Giuliani. So I think all that's gonna um, is going to emerge in the spotlight soon. So this is basically a glimmer of things that are to come. Well, just in closing, though, Scott Horton, it sounds like the evidence will actually, it's too late now, but the evidence will buttress the case against Trump in the first impeachment over Ukraine and his so-called perfect call with Zelensky. It sounds like that's what Parnas and company, along with Giuliani, were, were involved with. In fact, remember in the so-called perfect phone call that Trump told uh, Zelensky to deal with Rudy Giuliani. I, I think that's right. You started out here saying we're going from national security to uh, more tabloid journalist things. But no, national security is in the background here in a huge way. So I think it's now fairly evident. We've seen quite a bit of evidence uh, to the fact that there was a concerted Russian influence operation that targeted Rudy Giuliani and attempted to influence Trump by influencing him. Uh, and I would be surprised if Noel Dunphy did not have a good deal of evidence, a good deal of information about that, um, uh, just as Parnas did. Well, Scott Horton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update of the debt ceiling negotiations today between congressional leaders and President Biden. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Kahn, who is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role on a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Kahn. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Thomas. And the congressional leaders met with uh, President Biden today in the White House, and apparently they've come up with no agreement. Speaker Kevin McCarthy said they're still far apart. The White House announced that uh, President Biden after the G7 conference in Japan, which he leaves for tomorrow, Wednesday. He's cutting short the visit that was planned after the G7 to Papua New Guinea and Australia to come back on Sunday in the hope that they can make a deal. But at that point, what they'll only have about two weeks before the June 1st deadline, 
when the U.S. is expected to default. So what's your takeaway from uh, what happened today, Thomas? Well, they obviously didn't reach any agreement on substance. And when you can't reach an agreement on substance, you agree reach an agreement on process. Um, I think it's positive that they um, have made a little progress on the on the process and um, it, now it looks like President Biden and his his um, staff will be negotiating directly with um, Speaker McCarthy. Um, uh, the Democrats have now acknowledged um, publicly that uh, there's going to need to be a bipartisan deal and there's need going to be some compromise on the, on the side of the Democrats. Um, uh, uh, Senator Schumer said it was a good and productive meeting, um, and they're going to continue talking. Um, I think the, the fact that President Biden has cut his trip to um, Asia short is is important because uh, it will be important. It will be impossible for a deal to be reached without the president in the room. From my experiences from 2011, um, the, the most important concessions can only be made by the principals. And those two principles would be President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. So what's going on then with what both Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House, they both said that they're committed to getting a bipartisan bill done. At the same time, they're triggering this other mechanism, which is called a discharge petition. And that will need at least five Republicans. In other words, they literally get everybody to sign on to a petition, all the Democrats and five yes. Republicans. They've yes. laid the groundwork. So it takes about two weeks, doesn't it, that process? Yes. Yes. So is That's that right. the kind of plan B? In other words, they're pulling the trigger on the discharge petition. Yes. Uh, a discharge petition is really an emergency fallback uh, way for... Uh, the Democrats, the minority in the House, to bring a deal to the House floor that um, Kevin McCarthy and his leaders oppose. Uh, and I think Democrats are hoping that they can attract enough moderate House Republicans to go along with them. Unfortunately, though, as you pointed out quite wisely, uh, the discharge petition uh, is a very slow, cumbersome process. It takes uh, many days for a, a, a discharge petition bill to ripen, uh, and there are all sorts of procedural ways for the majority to um, slow down or, or even potentially block a, a successful discharge petition from passing. I think, frankly, it's it's really um, um, uh, an effort at leverage by um, a Democrats um, against Speaker McCarthy. Well, but is it a practical and useful leverage? I mean, I mean uh, the the. the the problem with a discharge petition is that they would actually have to start the process really immediately um, in order to pass a debt ceiling increase using this discharge petition by June 1st. And we only have two weeks. Um, uh, and um, I mean, I guess, so, I mean, they, they, they could start it. Um, it's never been used before for something as, as high stakes as, as a, an increase in the debt ceiling, um, I think it's a long shot, frankly. I think it will be very difficult to um, to successfully use. Um, but it's not on, under the question. It's, it's not, it's not to, something that should be taken off of the table. And I think Democrats, I think the problem 
fundamentally is that Speaker McCarthy has virtually no flexibility to negotiate uh, a deal in the middle. Um, he um, uh, he has a, a margin of only four votes, which means that five House Republicans can actually uh, dethrone him, remove him from his speakership. Uh, he depends on some of the most uh, radical right Republicans in, in his conference for power. Um, and so he has really no no flexibility to really uh, move to the middle. And ultimately, that's the way a deal is going to have to be struck. Um, Republicans are going to have to give up on some of their most maximalist command, uh, demands. Um, but unfortunately, um, some House Republicans have indicated that they actually think that a default is, is a viable option if they don't get their way. Um, one uh, Republican congressman said that... Um, uh, the uh, the bill that they passed, the four and a half trillion dollar cut, is a floor rather than a ceiling. So um, so McCarthy is is in a very very difficult bind, and I think um, his speakership is really on the line if he goes if he comes back to his conference with anything that is is more modest than what House Republicans first passed. And the House Freedom Caucus of these radicals who were perfectly happy to default and destroy the economy because they're essentially championing the return of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump, on the recent uh, CNN town hall, encouraged them to default, encouraged the House of Republicans. So is that a strategy? I mean, as crazy it is and as suicidal it is as, and as self-destructive as it is, is that what's going on here? Well, many House Republicans certainly look to Donald Trump for leadership, and uh, President Trump did say the other day um, that um, that the default was was a viable option, was uh, and that it wasn't such a big deal if the country goes into default. Um, and House, there, as I said, there have been House Republicans um, who have said that uh, that that default is 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 okay if if we don't get what we want. Um, no, it's not a, a real option. I mean, the, 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 as you point out, the Freedom Caucus is the most far-right group in the House of Representatives. Um, they um, were the ones that successfully uh, threw a former Republican Speaker John Boehner out of office. Um, uh, they were, have, were successful in shutting down the government um, at least once. Uh, the problem with default is that... It, that uh, there would be a, an economic a cataclysm. We would see a loss of of millions of jobs. We would see a skyrocketing increase in interest rates. Um, we would see um, uh, the world markets would would die. The stock market would collapse, um, and the credit rating of of, of, of the government of the U.S. Uh, would 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 crater. Um, so default is absolutely not an option. You know, I remember back in 2011, we came within two days of default. We did not default, but just we came within 48 hours of it, and our credit rating was downgraded. Um, interest rates went up, the stock market went down, and the cost to the taxpayers was over $1 billion, according to the Government Accountability Office. So default is absolutely not an option, and it needs to be avoided at all costs. Right, but I'm not. I'm suggesting, Thomas, that you're not dealing I, with rational people, and Trump is certainly not a rational, responsible person. 
And maybe they're that cynical that they think, okay, we'll destroy the economy, create a recession, the public will get angry at, at Biden, and, and Trump will be reelected. Well, I, look, I'm sure that, that, that what you're describing is, is, is the view of some House Republicans, and, and I think uh, it's certainly um, consistent broadly with some of what President Trump said. Um, but... Um, so, so I, I think we're in, in, in very dangerous waters right now, and, and that's why I think that the danger of default is the highest it's ever been for this country. I think the chances of default are extremely high right now. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I don't think we've, they've ever been higher. Um, and, um, uh, and, and so it, it's very, very worrisome. Um, House Republicans have moved radically to the right. Let me just give you one example compared to 2011. Um, in 2011, House Republicans demanded an increase of $1 in the debt ceiling in return for which there would be $1 of deficit reduction. So it would be a dollar-for-dollar dollar trade. This time, House Republicans have insisted on $4.5 trillion in spending cuts for a $1.5 trillion uh, increase in the debt ceiling. So, number one. Number two, in 2011, House Republicans, or Republicans, I should say, Speaker Boehner, House Republicans, were actually discussing and accepting the notion of raising taxes in order to cut the deficit. This year, House Republicans would never even consider the notion of, of revenue increases. So House Republicans have moved radically to the right, um, and so, therefore, the ability of, of President Biden to negotiate. Oh, and, and finally, Speaker McCarthy is is the weakest speaker we've had in 50 years, at least 50 years. Um, he depends for four votes in order to stay in office. Uh, by contrast, former Speaker Boehner um, had a margin of more than 40 votes. So Speaker McCarthy is the weakest speaker we've had in at least 50 years. He's dependent on the Freedom Caucus and the most far-right members of the Republican conference in order to stay in power. Um, and he has a margin of only four seats. John Boehner, the former Republican speaker, had a margin of 40 seats. Not only that, but John Boehner was actually willing to give up his job for the good of the country. He was willing to give up his job and stand up to the, the Freedom Caucus when they made what he thought was unreasonable demands in order to avoid a government shutdown. Um, Speaker McCarthy um, has never shown that that willingness to stand up to the um, Freedom Caucus. He's, he denied that uh, President Biden won the election, um, and he um, um, actually made a trip down to Mar-a-Lago shortly after January 6th to, to seek President Trump's support. So you're dealing with very different characters. And even with former Speaker John Boehner, we came within 48 hours of default. Right. But just in the last couple of minutes, uh, what happened to the Democrats? Why have they backed away from their demand for a clean debt limit bill? Look, I think it's a realistic appreciation of the facts on the ground. There is no way, realistically, to get a clean debt ceiling bill passed. Um, it's not going to pass the House. Just it's that simple. And I think they, they acknowledge now that they're going to have to make concessions, and both sides are going to have to make concessions. Um, frankly, at the end of the day, I would not be surprised if Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell comes into the process. 
McConnell and Biden have a, a long relationship. They negotiated successfully the 2011 debt ceiling increase. Um, McConnell represents a much more moderate strand of um, Republicans, and uh, he has shown the ability to cut a deal. Um, Kevin McCarthy has, does not have that experience, not that have a history, and does not have that strength. But what about these other alternatives, like mending a coin or the 14th Amendment, or just simply ignoring the Republicans and treating them as legislative terrorists, which is what Boehner described them as? Well, um, the, the White House and, and the Department of Justice are certainly considering options like a coin. Um, I hope they don't go to that uh, result. I think that the far better outcome is to, uh, to re- for Congress to raise a debt ceiling. If they do use a coin, it will absolutely be a challenge in the courts, and uh, it will mean that there will still be a shadow over the uh, credit worthiness of the, of the U.S. Uh, uh, debt. Um, but look, you know, extreme measures sometimes call for ex- extreme options, and if that's the only thing on the table uh, to avoid a debt, then you know the White House may be forced to to choose that as a as a, choose that as an option. Well, Thomas Kahn, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Kahn, who is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University, who worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as a staff director and chief counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role on a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. We can take a brief station break and back examining the disappointing results in Sunday's election in Turkey's since the kleptocratic autocrat whose economic policies have devastated the country still recovering from the deadly earthquake in which 50,000 died in part because of the corruption and cronyism of the Erdogan regime in any fair race would have been beaten. Outside the patient millions them into power expect a little more back for their taxes like school books beds in hospitals and peace in our bloody time all they get is old men grinding axes Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Asla Bali, who's a professor of law at Yale Law School, incoming president of the Middle East Studies Association of North America, and a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, she served as founding faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA's Law School, and the former director of the UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Asla Bali. Thanks so much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Asla. And I take it uh, you're disappointed with the results as uh, many, uh, both in Turkey and uh, those that are concerned about democracy in Turkey being under assault from Erdogan. Were the expectations too high? Was this wishful thinking? What's your explanation for why Erdogan managed to, he hasn't won yet, but he came close to getting 50%, 49.5. And because he controls all the media and has all these advantages, it's likely that he'll win in the next round. Yeah, I mean, there is something paradoxical about the amount of hope 
that one can still experience in a situation that you know is a form of soft authoritarianism. Um, but there was a lot of hope, and that hope was based on a whole host of factors. Um, first and foremost, just remarkable civil society mobilization and just the ongoing and astonishing resilience of Turkish civil society and the democratic commitments and faith in democracy that the Turkish electorate repeatedly has exemplified, notwithstanding the fact that the landscape has become so bleak in the country. So um, we've seen civil society mobilization all year this year, particularly in the aftermath of the terrible earthquakes in February where um, the governance crisis that has been generated by AKP rule was really on full display. The, the government simply failed to respond adequately um, to the earthquake crisis, did not mobilize resources, the Emergency Management Authority and the Red Crescent in Turkey, both of which were once you know, really exceptionally professional, competent entities, institutions that would have been able to respond rapidly um, to an earthquake. We're not able to, and that's because they've been hollowed out, as so many of the state institutions have, um, as Erdogan has purged longtime civil servants and technocrats and replaced them with political appointees and cronies. As a result, as this you know, country reeled from the earthquakes and recognized that no help was coming from the state, civil society mobilized en masse in a really exceptional display of solidarity across the country and also of organization on the part of just ordinary citizens. And that mobilization remained in many ways um, in place and excited and organized. And that's one reason that so many, um, myself included, were hopeful about this election against all odds. Um, the you know constitutional order has been turned into an executive style presidency following a set of amendments in 2017. The elections that have taken place since that time, including the 2018 national elections and then 2019 local elections, were against the backdrop of an incredibly skewed playing field. And yet, even under those circumstances, there were glimmers of real resilience on the part of the opposition, particularly in the 2019 municipal elections. And that momentum and the fact of the earthquake uh, civil society mobilization organization are part of the story about why people were hopeful. In addition, the opposition, um, at, led by Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu from the um, People's Republican Party, really had a very positive message. They adopted an anti-polarization strategy of emphasizing unity and trying to basically take the wind out of the sails of the militant nationalism and um, politics of polarization that Erdogan has mastered as his way of consolidating his own base. And there were reasons to think that that had made some inroads, particularly over social media. Of course, the traditional media are completely dominated by the AKP. I mean, just as an example, in the month of April, it's reported that um, Erdogan got 32 hours of coverage nationally for his campaign, and the opposition leader, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, got 32 minutes of coverage, just to give you a sense of the full-spectrum domination of the traditional media. But there was a clever social media campaign. There were 5 million first-time voters that were participating who have only known Erdogan rule all their lives and had given every evidence of being um, in favor of change and willing to vote for an alternative uh, to Erdogan. And there was a really appealing political reform platform um, presented by a united opposition, specifically around questions of corruption, questions of economic mismanagement, addressing governance crisis, 
um, shifting our political order back to a parliamentary democracy. All of these things and the tens of thousands of volunteers that campaigned for the opposition went out to uh, monitor um, man ballot boxes, monitor voting, report inconsistencies, organize transport. All of this in the run-up to the election is a reason that people felt optimism. And of course, polls suggested that in a one-on-one competition between Kluchtarola and and Erdogan, Kluchtarola was ahead. Unfortunately, that's not what we ended up seeing on Sunday at the at the actual ballot boxes. And I think there are some reasons for that. But the sources of optimism are not just real uh, in the sense that there was a there was grounds for it, despite the um, deeply authoritarian context. But also, one shouldn't overlook the fact that, in, indeed, Turkish civil society did perform. I mean, the fact of getting 88% turnout of the eligible electorate in a country that is going through the level of economic crisis and basic um, you know, physical crisis that people in the earthquake zone have been living through, that determination to participate is a remarkable testament to the Turkish um, you know, citizens' continued commitment to the idea of democratic practice, even if really very sadly this election result may mean that we will not see another contested truly competitive election in Turkey for some time. And there was, a, I think, a better candidate than Kutsalaru, wasn't there, in the mayor of Istanbul? But I thought uh, that Erdogan managed to intimidate him, threatened to jail him. What happened there? Why didn't they choose the mayor of Istanbul? Yeah, I mean, for starters, the assessment of who is a better candidate or worse candidate is a tricky one, um, because one some of the reasons that um, at least some might have been skeptical of the Kılıçdaroğlu candidacy is because he is, um, a po- you know, he's a politician who has been a longtime leader of this party. He is not as charismatic um, of, an, of a leader. He's not as young of a person as the mayors of either Istanbul or Ankara. And notably, he comes from a heterodox Muslim community. His background, his identity is an Alevi, um, which is a, a you know different kind of syncretic um, Muslim faith community. And so there were concerns that in a highly polarized nationalist ethno-majoritarian context, any candidate that was perceived by the electorate as different in this way was going to be a weaker candidate. I think the idea of fronting a candidate who would directly address these questions and call for unity and brotherhood by saying, yes, that's right, this is my identity, and that's no bar from our being citizens working together for the betterment of our republic, was could also be presented as a strength and was part of the positive messaging and anti-polarization messaging. But you're right that there were two alternatives that were very heavily debated as possible candidates, the um, both of whom are quite charismatic. Uh, the mayor of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, as you mentioned, and also Mansur Yavash, the um, mayor of Ankara. And in the end, uh, it is true that there's a threat of litigation hanging over Imamoglu that might have precluded him from running. But it was also the case that there was a need to rally around um, the core poll party, the CHP, that is at the center of the opposition group. And the choice of the group as a whole was Kılıçdaroğlu, even against the contestation from the far one of their far-right coalition partners, the E-Part and its leader, Meral Akshanar, who at one point in March threatened to leave the coalition over the choice of candidacy. In the end, both of the mayors were um, designated as vice presidents in a Kılıçdaroğlu cabinet. They were certainly in a line of succession and remain so. But I think the second guessing of the candidate is really beside the point. I don't think it's about who was the face 
necessarily of this opposition coalition that may have had some small contributing um, effect. But I think it's more unfortunately structural than that. Uh, and really, the blame game of asking whether or not the CHP might have done better is a little bit misplaced. I mean, they performed under the circumstances you know, incredibly well at some level. Um, they managed to marginally improve their parliamentary performance, I mean, just in terms of percentage of the vote, although they've lost seats um, for reasons I can explain in a moment. And the AKP lost a margin of its parliamentary um, share uh, in, in terms of its actual performance as a party as opposed to its coalition. This was actually its worst showing since 2002. Um, and against the backdrop, given the media landscape I described, given the incredible polarization of the underlying electorate, given the strategies of divisiveness that Erdogan has pursued and that he has all the levers of the state under his control, coming within five points of him in a contested four-way, as it was in practice, runoff, um, sorry, first round, is still remarkable. Well, one of the things that's puzzling about what's happening in Turkey in terms of, the, of its foreign policy shift under Erdogan towards away from the United States, towards Putin, and Russia to some extent is a traditional enemy of Turkey, is puzzling. It's also puzzling in a way why so much of the global south, countries like even our neighbor in Mexico and uh, Brazil, India and others, not necessarily support Putin's war in Ukraine, but they don't support Ukraine. And that uh, people find puzzling. And I think it, to some extent... The answer is in the global south and in Turkey is there's quite an element of anti-Americanism. Maybe it comes from the Iraq war and etc. But it seems that Erdogan has run an anti-American campaign. And I imagine in the next two weeks he'll do the same thing. Is that a factor, Asla? So I would say that this was really not, in that sense, a foreign policy-driven um, election campaign. He, what Erdogan has done, less than presenting an anti-American campaign, is presenting a campaign in which he um, claims to be a very uh, substantial leader on the global stage himself, capable of producing um, very advanced weaponry, capable of overseeing major alleged advances for the diplomacy of the country, a nuclear power station, um, you know, uh, new advanced ships and so forth, and uh, presenting himself as someone who's a critical actor in his ability or the ability of the country under his leadership to block a new NATO candidate, for example, in Sweden, if they so choose, to advance the country's interests, no matter what pressure is brought to bear on the country by any other, you know, large or hegemonic actor. I think that's the story he's presenting. The reasons that the global South as a whole have been less enthusiastic about some of the measures against Russia, I think, have to do with their impact on the global economy. I mean, they are dependent on supply chains and energy, um, including from Russia, and they're not being presented with a meaningful or attractive alternative to address the enormous shock um, to their economies that is being driven by energy prices and food stock prices as a consequence of the war. And so sanctions are just not an economic coercion or just not strategies that the global South are likely to sign on to. But in the case of Turkey, as an example, while it's true that Erdogan has 
been, um, you know, un certainly unwilling to isolate Russia, um, certainly engaging and imagining itself even in a sort of in a position of being a mediator. It has also supplied Ukraine with drones that have been critical in the um, fight against Russia. So Erdogan is playing both sides in the context of Russia to a degree that maybe not all other countries in the global south have been. But this wasn't largely a foreign policy driven election. It was an election driven really about the, it was about a referendum on Erdogan and Erdogan has presented himself on the global stage as this powerful, effective leader of a rising Turkey. Now that story needs to be understood in the context of a country going through a massive governance and economic crisis that has really been the victim of massive economic mismanagement. And so uh, he is really emphasizing some of his role on the global stage to divert attention from that, and then falling back on patronage networks and um, hollow promises of jobs and housing and gas to those who are the really most, unfortunately, profound victims of this mismanagement, which are the you know population that's been displaced from the earthquake region and the at least 50,000 people that were killed as a consequence of this, uh, of corruption and uh, mismanagement and in the urban planning domain under this government. But the great foreign policy successes that Erdogan is touting Aren't they an extension of his incredible ego? I mean, he built this massive palace for himself in Ankara. He's clearly an egotistical authoritarian kleptocrat. So why are people buying that? And, and are they happy that Sweden is being kept out of NATO? I mean, are people swallowing that uh, distraction? Because the lira is tanking. His economic policies are counterintuitive in terms of basic economics. So I just don't understand uh, how an alleged importance on the global stage, which is largely his claim and not necessarily supported by reality, is, is winning over the fact that the pocketbook issues are hurting uh, the average person. I mean, there are a number of challenges here, uh, I think, that explain the problem. But the first and foremost that one just has to never lose sight of, and having lived through a Trump presidency, I think an American audience is now better able to understand the degree to which a stacking of the system in which the media, uh, you know, gives disproportionate, and by disproportionate, I mean massively disproportionate attention to one person and one person's narrative can really skew public perceptions of reality. And in Turkey, the field is completely stacked in terms of control of the traditional media, but also in social media, the use of propaganda 24-7, the stifling of dissent, the stifling of opposition voices, the absence of freedom of assembly and freedom of association, the use of the criminal justice system to go after human rights uh, monitors, journalists, opposition politicians, imprisoning um, anybody that's seen as a rival. All of this has been true in Turkey, not through one term, as with Trump, but through, you know, 20 plus years at this point. So to begin with, the country has been remade through these strategies of polarization and scaremongering. And so what you have is a deeply na militant nationalist ethno-majoritarianism at play today because the AKP has depended since 2015 on an alliance with the ultra-right nationalist party in the country. It has begun, it has pursued since that time, since 2015, um, the demonization of Kurds and the and scaremongering and trading on the threat of supposed um, secessionism, separatism, terrorism, and so forth, and has framed uh, in this election campaign the opposition as aligned with 
supposedly terrorists, as well as, and again, pursuing culture wars and identity politics, so-called deviant groups, LGBT groups. The AKP has also traded on attacks on women and women's rights, um, allegedly defending so-called traditional family values. Again, much of this will be familiar to an American audience in terms of the kind of populist strategies that we see at play in domestic politics in this country. So to begin with, the narrative has been shaped by that. And then Turkey is facing a massive economic crisis. And what Erdogan is saying is, I control the levers of the state, and I'm going to promise you a series of measures for you. I'm going to increase public employment. I'm going to raise public sector wages. I'm going to give you handouts of natural gas, which he's already begun to do in anticipation of the election. I'm going to increase pensions. I'm going to reduce retirement ages. All of these things an authoritarian can promise in a way that someone who's saying, we're going to heal the crisis by pursuing democratic means and undertaking responsible governance, that's not nearly as appealing in some ways. And so what happened is, even though it's very clear who's responsible for the economic mismanagement in the country, it turns out to matter less than the patronage networks that Erdogan has put in place and the promises he can make. And he's shown over and over again that against all odds, he can deliver on at least some of those promises by, uh, you know, emptying the coffers of the state, by essentially uh, through mechanisms of corruption, rewarding loyal electorate and base to the exclusion of those that are presented as enemies. And so that the motivation to be part of the base that gets rewarded rather than be identified as an opponent is strong. And then the opposition is a six-party coalition that ideologically is very diverse and is united primarily by the goal of removing Erdogan. They have a wonderful political reform platform, but that platform um, would have to acknowledge that the depth of the crisis that Turkey faces today is one that is unlikely to be solved in the next five years. They can put the ship right. They can begin the process of trying to get the country back on a sustainable footing. But of course, like they can't deliver miracles and they're not promising miracles because of course they're not authoritarian populists that are, you know, trucking in lies. Uh, you know, so in a way, um, one can understand why the average voter confronted with this incredibly skewed media landscape and a serious economic crisis with one candidate promising goodies and the other candidate promising fiscal responsibility uh, may be tempted by the populist. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really, uh, you know, sure. it's a, it's a it, deep, it deep hole. It could happen here, Asla. <laughs> Trump could come right. back. Exactly. So, so exactly. just we've run out of time, but I mean, just to touch on a couple of things you said, the fact that he can hand out goodies like cheap natural gas has a lot to do with favors that Putin's giving him. So there's got to be a quid pro quo. Putin doesn't do anything for nothing. And and it's worth noting when you talk about his influence, in, he not only controls the press uh, in Turkey, Erdogan, but he also has controlled social media. A lot of that's, of course, thanks to Elon Musk caving in. Right. That's right. Um, and I would add, though, that there's also the Gulf. I mean, there are lots of sources of support that help the country ride out this um, crazy economic policies, lowest interest rates, I think, anywhere at this point um, globally. Uh, and it's all through authoritarian bargains, sadly. Right. Well, I thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it, Asla. My pleasure. Thank you, Ian.
And again, I've been speaking with Asla Bali, who's a professor of law at the Yale Law School, an incoming president of the Middle East Studies Association of North America, and a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Previously, she served as a founding faculty director of the Promise Institute for Human Rights at UCLA Law School, and the former director of the UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past